Welcome to the Design the Future podcast, where we talk with women leading the way towards a better built world. Design the Future is hosted by me, Lindsay Baker, with Kira Gould. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Design the Future podcast. It's good to be with you. This is Lindsay. And this is Kira. And yeah, we're, uh, I don't know, coming out of a week of green build. I feel like that's the thing that has to be said, you know, like lots of other things going on in the world. But as far as this group is concerned, we saw a lot of people in person and that was really exciting. So, did. It did feel like a bit of a, a family reunion uh, as a, in a little, in a few ways, it just felt like seeing all the tribe, um, really, really fun to see everybody. Yeah. And it was like a good energy this year. I have Mm -hmm. to say, I think that was pretty universal talking to people, um, in particular, like, well, one person I, I talked to who actually works at the U S green building council said they feel like they, like that they found like that, that we collectively found the bottom and that we're now on the way up in terms of our movement. And I think like the organization and where it's going. Yep. But that was, you know, it's like maybe a, I don't know, a hard thing to say, but like, I think that made us all feel really excited that like maybe combination of pandemic and all the things that have changed about our work lives, the people are feeling like, all right, we're back, like we're back together. We're here. We have exciting things to do together. Yeah, it was really nice. Uh, I don't know. I um, I just enjoyed it and enjoyed getting to see everybody. Although it was more exhausting than conferences used to be. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Three days of just being on your feet all day long and all the evening events. Um, and I, I, I must mention, of course, that we had our first in-person Design the Future podcast event um, on Tuesday night of Greenbuild. And it was really fun to see so many guests and friends of the podcast in person. Um, and just, I don't know, it had a little weird quality to me of, of you know, people that you don't expect to see, you know, they're from different parts of the country and that you've had conversations with, but never at the same time and all being in a conversation together. It was really nice. Yeah, it was so super nice. And yeah, thank you, Kara, and to our team, especially Amber, who helped put that on. It was really, um, I don't know, in particular, like, I think it hadn't occurred to me before that uh, some of our guests really need to know each other, like that there's sort of um, just catalytic work that can happen. Um, and not just our guests, but the folks that have been listening and that are just sort of kind of a part of the community in one way or another. Um, yes. It was, it felt really like exciting and potent and I think we'll probably do more um to just build the community in that way so if you're listening and you have ideas please uh let us know what those are because I think we've we we feel like we've got something we don't have a ton of time but we do want to build this um and make sure that people have the opportunity to to get to know each other and to scheme and all of that so yeah it was a great it was a great evening yeah it was really fun but it was, I mean, that was another interesting thing about Green Build, I think, um, and this was reflected again, I had a call yesterday with the Committee on the Environment Network, which is all the chapters all across the country there. And it, it's just great to talk to people sort of doing the work, you know, so all this, people have kind of, it feels like people have had their heads down during the pandemic doing all this great work. And there was this like moment of sharing it. And there was something really great about that. Um and it yeah. really sort of restores my faith in the idea that, you know, a collective effort can have real potential. Yeah, I know what you mean. It definitely feels like people have all of these things they've learned and accomplished that we haven't really gotten to celebrate mm-hmm. or tell each other about and sort of discuss. And yeah, we're maybe just at the beginning of that in some ways. I guess that's one reason why we started the podcast in the first place was to try to keep that going a bit, you know, in the in the, in the void, um, but much easier to do in person for sure. Yep. Yep. Good times. Yeah. So well, I would love to switch gears a little bit, Lindsay. I'm super excited about our guest today. Um, we have Carrie Meinberg Burke with us today. Welcome Carrie. Hello. We're so glad you could join us today. I'm going to start by uh, a little introduction of Carrie. 
Carrie is an architect, a designer, an artist, and an inventor whose work operates at the nexus of art and science. Honed through decades of experience, her analysis synthesis design methodology has been applied to challenging design problems to uncover unique forms of intrinsic performance and enduring beauty. The work is infused with research into light, ecology, health, human sensory perception, and biomimicry. After practicing on her own, she launched Parabola Architecture with Kevin Burke in 2011. Parabola's built projects include 1212 Bordeaux, Google's first completed ground-up building and prototype for their future workplaces. Carrie is also co-developing an innovative heating and cooling unit that applies biomimicry principles to optimize form for thermal comfort and energy efficiency. And she's going to tell us more about that. But first, uh, Carrie, I would love it if we could start off, if you could just tell us a little bit about how you got interested in architecture and sustainability, really what has been your path? Uh, thanks for having me and asking these very provocative questions. It's been great to reflect back on how I really got here uh, for this podcast. And I think it's really useful for all of us to do that now and then. Um, it starts, of course, for me with very supportive parents. Um, they always supported my creativity and encouraged me. And there's probably um, some significance to the fact that my mom is very much an intuitive, creative person. And my dad is a very methodical budget analyst. So. I definitely come with a sort of a type of mind that I found was very fitting to architecture. Um, growing up, we lived overseas uh, for a couple of years. Um, so in the absence of media, I used to keep myself occupied by doing things like growing salt crystals. I would just super saturate some salt water and I would get out the magnifying glass and every day go and watch these crystals forming. And I'm bringing this up because I can see this as a type of observational curiosity that I had as a very young child and sort of seeing an order in nature and the sort of order and randomness that appears from that kind of study. I also used to um, make d dolls and cars and just build things, but the the doll part was really specific for me because I was designing joints for the dolls and I would create joints out of pieces of wire. And there was always this part of me that has joined the idea of humans and human nature with the making of things. And like these dolls were something that were very anthropomorphic for me, both physically in terms of the structure of the body, which has always remained an interest for me with health and well-being, but also in a, um, a kind of analog to how I understood structure as an architect. Um, and also the idea of, of infusing a type of user personality in, in this process when I was little that I do find very relevant to imagining people who might occupy the buildings I'm designing. And that certainly has come more into play as, as the world focuses more on user experience, particularly through um, the internet that's really brought forth that. But architecture is something that has that physicality built into it, um, the human scale built into it. And I just realized um, in my background that I wanted to really design the experience more so than the object. And I almost went into film at a certain point after undergraduate school. Um, then I realized uh, maybe I could develop a design method that was more akin to filmmaking where I would design the experience first and then the artifact around that that would shape that experience. So I decided to go to grad school. This is after practicing uh, for eight years and getting licensed. So I went into the uh, post-professional program at Yale, which enabled me to bypass the technical um, requirements of the program since I was already licensed and really take anything I wanted from the college. Um, so I found that it was really a time for me to uncover the black holes in my education and to fill those in with things I hadn't learned when I went right into architecture school and undergraduate school. So I ended up um, very focused on 
finding ways to deepen my design method and support it with coursework that would help to expand my thinking. So I took courses like Infinity in Perspective in the philosophy department. I took a a seminar uh, where we actually read the Trubius and Alberti, the original text, and had um, a lot of great seminar conversations about that. And at the same time, I was taking um, initially one at a semester course with Mario Gandalsonis that I expanded into three independent studios with him. And in part, it was because I felt that the four semester structure would um, be a constant process of restarting anew each time. And again, grad school for me was a process of expanding and deepening my understanding. So I really wanted to push through walls that, that always come up in creativity and find tools for breaking through those. So those three semesters were focused on the work that eventually became our house and the studio for a parabola, uh, which we've called Timepiece. And that work was really uncovering a way to shape form with light and to shape the experience of architecture through more of an understanding of human perception. So in that process, I um, also developed a tool that I still use to this day, which is this process I call building little thought experiments. And it's something I do sometimes to explore an architectural idea without it being burdened by needing to be architecture or a building. So it might isolate a particular question or thought about architecture. And I'm also using it to create some bench test uh, experiments that will inform um, this convective unit that that Kier had mentioned that I've been working on with an engineer colleague that I'll get to in a, in a few minutes. Um, the other exposure to um, architecture and sustainability that I that was very important is that my husband and partner Kevin Burke uh, was Bill McDonough's partner for a number of years and so his his parallel path, uh, working deeply with cradle to cradle and uncovering some of the very early solutions to sustainability and, and uncovering questions um, was happening concurrently with uh, the work I was doing on our house timepiece. So as it turns out, um, Oberlin that they designed, the Oberlin um, building that Lindsay actually uh, studied in um, was concurrent with the design and construction of our house timepiece. So all of that was pre-lead. There were really very few guidelines for how to um, achieve this important work. Yeah, I mean, I have to just say it's it's cool to hear the mention of Oberlin. It reminds me of when I first met you both, Carrie. And it just yes. feels like um, such a su such an experience, such a, and you in particular, I feel like I've lived so many lives, you know, like um, <laughs> in that time. Um, yes. So this is a hard question that I want to ask you because I, it's um, the work that you've done is pretty unique. But can you talk a little bit about sort of people going into the field of architecture, what you think that they should be good at or interested in. And maybe, you know, if people are interested in specifically the kind of path that you followed, um, what what tips might you have for people or what guidance might you have? Yes, uh, it's a great question. And um, I did teach a semester with Kevin at Berkeley, which is another time that I, I got to know you. Um, and I think in that process, it really did help to solidify the way I feel about what it takes to prepare for this profession. But one thing I'll say is that I know that mine is a very unconventional, nonlinear path, and that's largely by design. I have always felt that I needed some balance between introspective, quiet, focused work on my own and collaborative work with others and or being sort of more working in obscurity at times without a lot of scrutiny and just developing an idea. And then when it's ready to hit air, feeling like that's when I could really share it. So um, I think that I think that as people prepare for this profession, somehow maintaining connection to 
why it is you choose to be in the profession you're in, like what in your heart is really driving you to that interest and maintaining and cultivating that work in parallel with what you're learning from working with others in collaboration. I think it's really important. It's played out of my work over time, how important this is the, to uncover design principles that drive the design decisions, that design is so much about decision-making and the clarity in that process often comes from having some sort of touchstone that you can go back to, to evaluate whether the design is on track and if it's really optimizing for the issues, the kind of conundrums that it's being asked to solve for. Um, the other thing I would say, I learned this from Mario Gandosonis when I was in grad school, he described the importance of switching gears between analysis and synthesis. And his point was you need to create a resonance in that that is so rapid that's almost like a tone. You don't feel like you, at some point, you don't even feel yourself switching gears as much. You are just basically analyzing and then making something which then raises new questions that you then analyze further that then gives you more input and you go back and forth. And that's in comparison with something that you, know, you might consider a rush to form, which is to take a lot of analytical information, and get all of this information and then make something quickly from it without building this resonance back and forth. And I've seen that in situations where I've been teaching or on a review where I will see that a student has just spent most of their time analyzing and then whatever form that they present after that really has very little influence from the analytical work they've done. Yeah, that's so cool. I'm just reflecting on how <laughs> how much I feel like the way that you think about your work, it must have just been so like the, the way that you got to sort of take a break from practice and go back to Yale and take classes mm -hmm. and like all these fascinating things. I'm like, yeah, this is this is sort of what that can lead to. So I, I feel like there's also something yes. there. It's like, you know, what it means to to be able to go back and think about process and think about um I don't know, theory, I guess is one way of putting yes. it. But yeah, okay. Well so with that um, we want to start talking a little bit more about, oh, the products, I guess, of your work and, um, wondering if you can tell us about, um, the, some of the most meaningful accomplishments in your work life so far, if you had to, if you just had to pick a few. Yes. And that's always the hard part, the narrowing down, um, in some ways, but what you just said is so relevant because so much of what is most meaningful to me has been this ability to res to resonate again, not only between analysis and synthesis, but between theory and practice. And so the method I was working on in, um, in grad school really did give me a launch point for how to rethink the way I was designing. But it didn't at that point give me the, um, the tools to manifest that in built form. And so the, that's where some of the projects, the actual built artifacts that came out of that are the things that really did enable me to deepen that method and to also create much more um, continuity with the theory. So it, it really created a way for me to have the opportunity to be in design leadership roles. Uh, in part, I feel like it, it gave me not only tools, but a type of confidence in the type of design process that I was working with. And also it, um, it enabled me to collaborate better uh, with other professionals. And that's one of the things that has been my main um, transition from design leadership as a sole practitioner to launching Parabola with Kevin. And the way we've had the opportunity to both keep our individual approaches to design and actually create much more of what we consider binocular vision. We don't blend our work or compromise in this sort of conventional sense, but we really came to this with our, our own backgrounds to bring to Parabola um, a type of design process 
that would allow us to um, manifest the process into an architecture that we feel is very uh, fitting to the, again, the conundrums it's being asked to, to solve for. So we often get really great challenges from our clients who really want to resolve or solve very ambitious problems. It's helped us to design with engineers and builders, bringing them to the table at the beginning instead of as an afterthought. Uh, we, we definitely have this method that we've dubbed forces evolve form that has enabled that to happen pretty directly because it by definition needs to understand the forces that are happening and whether it's structural engineering, mechanical engineering or constructability or budget or any, any number of factors that inform architecture, those, those forces need to be understood at the beginning and we view those as form drivers. It's different than a process uh, that might be considered make the form and then let everybody else solve the rest, like make a shape, let the engineers come in and structure it, figure out how to make it thermally comfortable. This is much more bringing them in at the, at the beginning. And that's helped us also be, um, be able to work with our clients in a way that respects their budget like it's another material. We call it our pile of stones. So this idea with our, with our whole team, actually, we tell them, this is the metaphor we're working with. We have a pile of stones. It's all we have for this project. And we need to all agree upon where we're putting it and why. And that goes back to the design principles that we all agree upon. So our practice is a small practice that has been very fortunate to work at all scales. Again, somewhat unconventional, but part of it is there this type of alchemy that has come through of the opportunities we've been given. So the other um, accomplishment that's very meaningful to me is one of the one of the most personal outcomes from this is the, the house that we live in and work in. It's the home for, for Parabola and uh, timepiece really is the manifestation of the theoretical work that I was doing back in graduate school. And it has been an experience that I didn't expect at the beginning, which was all the intellectual theoretical work I had done to, to shape form with light and understand where the sun is and when, and then find the corollary angles in architecture that would unlock a form response. All of those things were completely understandable to me. But then once we framed the house and when the Oculus was installed and, we, and I remember it just sitting in the, what we call the observatory space, uh, we might call it a living room, um, sitting in there and just being made dizzy and somewhat traumatized by watching this beam as it moved down the walls and across the floor and up the other wall that the earth is spinning so fast and um, time is moving so quickly. Our lifespan is such a minute moment. It was sort of one of those feelings that I view as akin to what I hear astronauts feel, a much different version, small, smaller scale, but they call it the overview effect, which is when you're far away from the earth, there are certain profound realizations or experiences you can have about, you know, life and death and very profound things. And I definitely had that reaction um, in a different scale, but that came from the realization that the sun in its distance from the earth and this beam of light coming into timepiece was one long beam of light. And I was at one end of it and the sun was at the other. And it was this movement happening. And that at this latitude, we're rotating at 788 miles per hour. So the other dizzying part was the sense that we're spinning really fast and we just gotten used to it uh, like we're on a ship. So my bringing this up in part to say that the ability to take a theoretical idea and not only build it, but live in it and experience it has just been the greatest learning experience. And that perspective I'm mentioning, I feel is very key to a type of understanding of nature and our place in it that has been 
a key to uh, our point of view about sustainability and design and how they are truly one thing and how critical they are in terms of the, the continuity of life on earth and how our built environment has the ability to cause harm to that or to create health and well-being from that. Um, the other thing with timepiece that's been very meaningful is that we got to be our own client. I was the contractor and the resident. So to be able to be in these roles and also to do this over what is currently like 23 years and counting, it's just a constant evolution of learning. So it's very much been our laboratory. So I think it's made, uh, it's made me a better designer for clients by having that perspective on being an owner and also uh, a much better uh, communication with the builder side since I was a contractor. My drawings are much different than they were before uh, building this house. The communication of what's really key for someone making something and trying to help introduce them to why a design is the way it is so that they can not only understand it, but what always happens is they contribute to it and make it better. And I found that with every, every builder we've worked with. Uh, so the laboratory part of, of this timepiece experiment has been also a way to not only understand daylight and form, but also develop thermal comfort solutions that have led to uh, this convective unit we're working on and uh, developing a material palette that embraces weathering instead of maintenance. So uh, one thing I want to note, too, is that um, the shape of the north roof of timepiece is defined by the slope and skew of the beams in the roof that match the angles of the sun at the winter solstice. So when, as the beam of light comes through the oculus, it skims the ceiling of the north roof. And the shape that you see from the north is of this segment of a cone. And it's just a very beautiful form. And it's something I didn't draw or conjure. It's something that is a mapping of natural forces. And one of the things that we have that um, Kevin took this really beautiful photo from the north elevation of, of the roof. And it it's very um, meaningful to us that Lance Hosey actually used that photograph in his book, The Shape of Green, to um, accompany his epilogue on Beauty Manifesto. So um, there was, we've had conversations with him in the past about how, how that process of making shape from natural forces results in a type of beauty that really transcends aesthetic preference. So um, the other note on timepiece is that it has been so important for me personally to have our daughter Ava grow up here and Kevin and I um, both feel that the opportunity for her to not only grow up here, but also to have witnessed the construction all the way back to the early design phases has been significant. So when I've talked to her about what it's been like for her, she has described, um, and, and by the way, she's 30 years old now. So she was six when we moved in um, or started building it. And she said that her observations about living in timepiece all her life has been that she realized that not all buildings are consciously tuned to, to their site and daylight and that this building is really locked into its place. And it definitely informs the places she chooses to spend time, whether it's to live, place to live or a coffee shop or a place to study. Uh, she learned that it's possible to choreograph the space that you're in and how you spend time. And she described her awareness of time from daylight as something that is a background process. The things that Kevin remembers so much about living here through the years has been some of the moments of crisis that we've all gone through. Like the first equinox after 9-11, we had an open house and people just came here with the light and observed that. And it was very quiet. Um, the Charlottesville incident, um, in 2017 to be able to be here while it felt like the world was in this terrible chaos. Um, 
And then for us to be able to work here during COVID and really not miss a beat in terms of our day-to-day experience, this is how we've been working for years, but also to realize the importance of uh, ventilation and natural daylight and, and a really healthy environment. The other project I want to mention is, is Google. Um, the work that led to 1212 Bordeaux uh, that Kier had mentioned as their first completed ground up building. Preceding that, we were hired to work with Google by Mary Davidge and John Igo to work on their design guidelines with Chris Coleman. Uh, this was a process back when they were really wanting to communicate better with architects uh, in terms of communicating their, their needs and the, the way that they wanted design teams to address their, their designs. And that process really led to the opportunity to design 1212 Bordeaux. So it was so much like the process of transforming theory into practice. This was really transforming uh, design intention from a client into a built reality. So we worked closely with Josh Portner, who was the project executive, and John Castagnoli at DevCon to develop a design build process that also brought the engineers and uh, contractor together with the design team and the client. And the key thing that's really unique about it is in applying the force of the evolved form lens to it, uh, they asked us to solve for Googler focus so people could actually get their work done and not be distracted. And so we realized that in order to do that, um, you know, the elements they were asking us to solve for were light, air, and noise. And those are ethereal materials, much much like what drove timepiece, well, light and thermal comfort and these other qualities. So much of architecture is not material. And so working to solve for light, air and noise, uh, we developed what is actually a very unconventional solution to the location of a building core. The realization or the epiphany was that if you're trying to design out distraction in order to let people focus, one thing that you need is some sort of buffer between buzz areas and focus areas. A lot of conventional buildings tend to blend those functions and you get sort of a low grade or sometimes high grade irritation from that type of juxtaposition. So we were able to not only design the architectural core and shell, but also the interior architecture and use program like meeting rooms and elevator cores and stairs to create a buffer between buzz zones and focus zones. And those zones also influence the way we approach daylight and acoustics. So the buzz zone allows direct beam light to come in. It's at the cafes and people can choose to be in direct beam daylight. It's a little bit more buzzy acoustically. And then the focus area is all lit from above and it has very rigorous acoustical mitigations and beautiful daylight and no direct beam whatsoever. So these are these are intentions that go into the design and yet what we realize i think working with this idea of designing the experience is it can't be so rigid that people feel like the design or the architecture is trying to direct them in a certain way it's an idea of giving people a range of choices and allowing their preferences to guide how they use a building Harry, I love all that. I love it. It's so interesting. I have not had the good fortune to visit 1212, but I have been in timepiece. And it's so interesting hearing about you talk about the two of those, you know, together mm -hmm. um, and the connections between them. That's just fascinating. I do want to give you an opportunity to, to talk a little bit about a project that you're working on now that you would like listeners to know about. Yes, it's this uh, ongoing work in timepiece to develop uh, and optimized for thermal comfort along with acoustics, which is to say quiet thermal comfort. I've been working closely with Galen Stengel, who's a local engineer that we've collaborated with for years now. And um, he and I have worked off and on on this idea of a convective unit and it's work that's ongoing. Uh, so I'll, I look forward to sharing more of that as we are able to share more of it. Um, but it is in essence a type of, of design uh, of, an, of an element that will allow 
the space to be cooled using convection and basically designing out fan energy and both the energy and noise of that and creating a type of uh, comfort, adaptive thermal comfort that feels much more akin to walking along a stream uh, in the summer where it's very warm, but you have this kind of plume of cool air that goes up your body. And it's, just, it's essentially the physics of displacement ventilation. When we have lived in the house before implementing this design, we've been using a, a type of fan coil unit that's noisy and it's somewhat our, it's our temporary solution, which has been useful because it prompted us to not just keep going with it because sometimes the irritants of those things can really, you know, prompt us all to improve the situation. So um, that um, allowed us to, to test this idea in our house uh, because we do have geothermal and a, a water to water heat pump. So we have all the equipment here that drives currently our radiant slab floors. And we were able to essentially create a, a branch off of those pieces of equipment to feed our convective unit prototype. So Galen and I um, built the initial prototypes literally out of like fin tubes and garden hoses and clamps. It was, um, you know, dubbed our Frankenstein, but it was very much an opportunity to put a number of different types of sensors in the unit and get a lot of data that we were enabled us to optimize with two prototypes. But I think the main thing for me, and that's made me stick with this idea is that it, it was up in our studio when we were doing the prototyping and I sat near it and the sensation of the cooling was so wonderful and different than what I had experienced. And it was very quiet and it felt like something that was a unique a way to bring a natural property of convection into the built environment in a way that was just very subtle and a lot of uh, a lot more variability than when you try to heat or cool the entire volume of air. And of course, what we've learned since then too, through this optimization process is that we can reduce some of its physical elements. So we were sort of trying to dematerialize it to both make it more affordable, but also just find that sweet spot for the correct amount of material to the results needed. So then coming from that analysis is the realization that it saves a lot of energy as well. So our goal is to continue prototyping that in timepiece. We worked um, for a brief time with an NSF grant with a team at UVA a few years ago. Um, and the work we did then was to see if we could uh, use computational fluid dynamic models to help us optimize from the initial prototypes. But what Gail and I quickly realized is that in order to really solve for this device and make it something that is different than the way most forced air mechanical equipment is designed, we really needed a different method. And computational fluid dynamic modeling cannot give you answers. It can only tell you what you ask it. So Galen and I have more recently been embracing more of a biomimetic process to uncover not only the problem set that we're solving for, but the actual form drivers for how this unit will become shaped and optimized. So we're right in the middle of that now. So that's one thing that I'm really excited that, um, that I'm working on now. The second thing that we're working on, uh, this is a parabola. It's, it's something that we were had, had the opportunity to work with a long-term client on to during COVID actually to initially uh, evaluate their workspaces for uh, understanding COVID and how the workplace might be affected by the pandemic. And it became a collaboration with this client and Eric Solrain of Integral to work on a naturally ventilated building typology that is something between a flexible loft and a lab. And we're calling it Project X for the time being, but it was a full study that we did that really was proof of concept that natural ventilation, displacement ventilation, not only is key to reducing airborne pathogens like COVID or any other airborne pathogen, it also allowed a type of um, energy overlay, energy savings overlay, and also 
an understanding that in indoor environmental quality, when designed correctly, it's really a process of using displacement ventilation and natural ventilation to rethink the assumption that buildings should have mixed air systems. So we started with that initial concept and working with Eric closely and his team on form factors for natural ventilation, we developed very um, inspiring looking forms within the building that were thermal chimneys and skylights and they created separation between these loft like spaces. So that work is something that's ongoing and we hope will become a built project at some point. That's fantastic, Carrie. It's so interesting to me too, to see some of the through lines here. And I'm just taken with this idea also that about, you know, starting with the human experience and letting the artifact come after that and how that's just sort of, you can see that thread through mm -hmm. so many of these things. Um, but I want to shift gears just a little bit and talk about um, sort of the industry um, in which you operate. Um, the green building industry is often thought of as a movement. And I'm wondering, do you feel like you're part of an industry or part of a movement? Or how do you think about that for yourself? I'd say definitely feel a part of a movement uh, because I think the even the term movement implies a type of change and action. And I think it's less about it being a label. So um, the, the other part of that is I think the movement has become more and more clear about how design and sustainability should be one thing. So I definitely feel part of that because we were doing things similar to this before there were the terms or the protocols. And I think the tools have really become so sophisticated like Living Building Challenge and obviously LEED has, has, has managed in its history to to influence a lot of, of buildings, but I think that um, I consider it a movement because there's a lot more to do. To do. Uh, the other thing I feel um, fortunate that we, in our involvement with the movement have, even in our small scale practice, we have the opportunity of collaborating with Google and as a client at scale, they have significantly moved the needle on sustainability and health and working closely with Mary Davidge and John Igo um, obviously we worked with Lindsay as well in that capacity of just the, you know, the heavy lift it is to make buildings transform, um, in order to be more sustainable and, and to provide healthy environments for people. It does take, um, a, a significant number of people and a significant level of expertise. And so Google brought all of that together and we were able to be involved with that. Thank you so much for that, Carrie. And I, and, and thank you for kind of being somebody that is always moving the needle in that way. I think it's really, it's really critical. Um, so I want to now ask you a little bit more about the future. Um, I guess I'm really curious, especially from all of this really thoughtful and visionary work you do, where did you think we would be um, in the 2020s or in the year 2020, mm. even though and that's, a, that's a couple of years away? I guess I, I, I remember that was the year we talked about at Oberlin. So I'm curious mm -hmm. if that ever got, you know, if that so ever true. came up in yeah. your world. But um, yeah, like where did you think we would be at this moment um, in the field um, or with the work? Uh, and how does it I... compare? I really thought we'd be further along based on the strength of the early thinkers and the amount of information that was getting out there, whether it's, you know, through David Orr and, you know, um, the, well, he's described um, just the thinkers that influenced him. I mean, this goes way back. So I, I think that and, um, and just the way, unfortunately, things became politicized around sustainability. I just thought we'd be further. I didn't think we'd have to keep stepping back so far. And so that's why that's unfortunately where I feel, I feel like my, my anticipation would have been more optimistic than it is, than where we are. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I'm with you. <laughs> yeah. I, I do think there's something about like being around somebody like David Orr, who's trying to kind of rally everybody mm -hmm. 
that made me feel that sense of deadline and that sense of obligation that you probably felt too. Um, but yeah, no, that, that, that sounds like me. Um, okay. Well, so specifically what, what do you think we have done well in progressing mm -hmm. on in the world of sustainability and buildings and, and where do you think um, our major areas are that we just haven't, haven't made enough progress? Well, I do think, and I do think there are major areas of progress uh, because the, the number of tools we have, the progress we've made on fabrication methods and building science has really driven solutions that are new and different. But I have to say, I think part of what I really appreciate, especially when it comes to something like building science, is that it's more about remembering things we've forgotten. Like when you, when you really look at Vitruvius and Alberti, they understood these principles way back then. And we've just kind of forgotten over and over. So I think there's almost like a process of remembering the value and understanding the value of beauty and aesthetics and, and certainly like biomimicry and biophilia as, as acknowledgements and specifically biomimicry as a tool set, a way of thinking, I think is really informing things. It seems to be informing at the moment a lot more in the realm of, of, uh, industrial design in some ways than, than architecture at scale, but that's what I, I strive to understand better or to try to, to leverage more. Uh, the circular economy, cradle to cradle thinking is obviously something that was a major fulcrum in moving things forward. And uh, there's a lot more work to be done there, but that I think is another area of great progress. As far as lack of progress at this point, um, I think that sometimes I feel sustainability is still a bit of an overlay in a design process instead of integral or at the front end. Mm -hmm. And there's it's partly missed opportunities that I see in that. And it's partly that sometimes it forces teams to take a heroic form and, and figure out a way to put people into it and to make it energy efficient or thermally comfortable so I think that that's to me still something that goes on. And I, I kind of point to a little bit of the uh, sort of Instagram, social media realm we're in where buildings are meant to look great and splashy in that medium and um, not necessarily in reality. I would say that it's so important to see buildings in person or experiencing, experience them in person because the representation of an image is just a different read completely than the, the reality of a building. I, I think back to um, one of the best things I heard about 1212 when we designed it and built it is uh, jo Josh Portner said, it's a building with a soul. Like that's mm -hmm. the kind of thing that you can't get really in an image. You have to really feel that. And I think it's a resonance with the human condition. It's really inspiring when that happens. And I think it makes connections back to nature and other larger topics. Mm, yeah. Oh man, I love that. That's a, uh, yeah, it's such a, it's such a good point and it does really feel like social media is kind of exacerbating some of, some of that issue of like, who are we designing for? Um, but, mm -hmm. uh, but having, having, having a building that people feel has a soul um, but there's there's probably no checklist for that. <laughs> that about <laughs> that's so true. That is so true. Yeah. Although I, I'm sure it's worth trying to find one. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, we are almost out of time, but we have this one question that we like to wrap up on, Carrie. So I'm very excited to hear uh, your answer for this. Uh, who are you most inspired by these days in terms of leaders of any kind? Um, they could be they could be past or present. They don't even have to be people, but yeah, what, what keeps yeah. you going? I actually find that the, it's still sort of the rear view mirror that I find most inspiring as I'm going forward. And that's the historical thinkers like Ptolemy who designed the quadrant that's a you know, handheld sundial that takes the universe, makes it legible and fits in the palm of your hand. I mean, that to me is a, an inspiring object that I have in front of me all the time with the aspiration of, I wish I could think like that, design like that, observe like that. Um, you know, like as I mentioned, Vitruvius and Alberti, they're these um, fundamental tomes that were written about 
the built environment that have a lot more wisdom in them than we often remember. And I think reading the original text was very enlightening for me to realize how relevant they always are. There, there's, there are certain givens in the built environment that, and for human beings, like the way we are, our sensory perception, our scale, um, that that continue to be relevant. But also, um, Mario Gendelsonis told us that if you really want to innovate, you simply have to understand history. You can't go forward with uh, significant contributions without understanding what was behind. Um, the experience of be being at Yale and being able to go into a couple of Khan's buildings uh, and, and visiting Khan's buildings over time, I, his work is is really inspiring to me and to us, especially like the Kimball, which just recently turned 50. So uh, I, I think that there are lessons in those buildings, especially if you think about or visit, ideally visit the Kimball and, and perceive the sense of human scale with this vast scale that happened concurrently, the way daylight and materiality is so simply and beautifully and elegantly manifested. And um, I'm also inspired by Duchamp's work, um, partly, I always have been since I've learned about his work, but the idea of, of, again, mastering somewhat of a classical training as he did and really um, rethinking what art is, like just tackling such a big topic through the initiative of the work itself, not just talking about it, but doing work that was provocative. And uh, in terms of other movement leaders, I think that Christine Williamson is doing a great job educating architects and others uh, and contractors and others about building science. Christine has a great gift in explaining and simplifying the physics behind building science so that we can understand the why behind a wall section or a type of material assembly. And I still admire Janine Benyus for what she's been able to do to translate this concept of biomimicry into an actionable process. Mm, yeah, uh, that's a good one to end on. Janine Benyus is, is wonderful and inspiring in so many ways. Um, but yeah, thank you for that. I love also the, like, the really bringing it back. Um, I'm, I'm also sort of a of a Libra that we've lost uh, some of the wisdom of past. So uh, thank you for bringing that to us. And uh, mm -hmm. thank you so much for being on the show, Carrie. It's been such a, a pleasure, such an expansive conversation. Well, it's really been a pleasure for me. And I really admire what you're doing with this podcast. And I look forward to listening to everyone. Oh, thank you. Well, thank you for being with us. And thank you, Kara, as always. It's good to be with you. Delightful, as you. always. Yeah. And that is it for us this week on the Design the Future podcast. Thanks again, everyone, for listening. Please leave us a review on Apple. It really matters. It helps people find us. Stay safe, and we'll see you next time.